I'd like to just uh, say again, thank you for inviting me. <coughs> uh, it's uh, lovely to be here amongst you. Uh, two weeks ago, we had two baptismal services in my church, one in the morning and one in the evening, because there were six people that were to be baptized. And uh, we were very excited. We, we have baptismal services every three or four months, but on this occasion, um, there were six people. Usually there are three or four, but uh, there were six, and so we thought, oh, this is great. And so we were going to have two services. But that same weekend, uh, there was someone called Martin Goldsmith, who some of you may know or have heard of, um, who's a, um, a lecturer at All Nations Christian College and uh, a missionary and uh, missionary teacher and strategist. And uh, he was um, talking to students here in the city, and one of the things he said was that when he first went to North Sumatra in the mid-1960s, uh, the denomination that he worked with would not have a baptismal service unless there were at least 25 people because there were so many people becoming Christians that they couldn't cope with any less than that. So they would only hold one for 25. <coughs> and then he went on to say that um, another <coughs> missionary colleague uh, that I also knew, who went there in the mid-70s, early 70s, he said, well, by the time I arrived there, uh, they wouldn't have baptismal services unless there were 50 people because the numbers were just growing so much. You see, the church in North Sumatra at that time was certainly experiencing revival. The gospel of Jesus Christ was impacting the cities and the villages and the towns around. <coughs> And this morning, uh, we're continuing, if I press the right button, right, did I get anything on my, yes, so on the right, ah, right, thank you. We're continuing our series, a series on uh, growing church inside the first Jesus communities, and uh, doesn't like me, sorry. Can't get anything else on it. Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, and this one, um, I don't know why I put number nine on there. I think it's the ninth in your series, uh, the City Impact Ephesus, or as I prefer, uh, as I've called it, if we can have the next slide, <laughs> thank you. Uh, impacting the church, uh, impacting the city for Christ, impacting the city for Christ. And I trust that as we look at these verses in Acts 19, we'll get excited about impacting our city or cities across the world for Jesus. Because I believe, and I'm sure you do, that Christians, we can make a difference. We can make an impact on our city, on cities throughout this world. And we, we're beginning to, we are. But I think we'd all acknowledge that we've still got quite a long way to go. So what can we learn from Acts 19 about impacting the city? Well, um, in Acts 19 verse 1, we read that Paul goes back to Ephesus. In Acts 18, we see that he'd already visited Ephesus, uh, but he hadn't stayed there on that occasion. But he comes back at the beginning of Acts 19, and then in verse 8, where we began reading, Paul uh, begins his, his ministry there in Ephesus. So what was God's strategy 
for, next please, <laughs> what was God's, uh, Paul's strategy for um, Ephesus? Well, I would suggest that actually it wasn't Paul's strategy at all, that it was God's strategy. Um, because if you remember, all through the Acts of the Apostles, we see, uh, well, all through, yes, we do see all through the Acts of the Apostles how God has been guiding the apostles. It's been God that's been sending them out. You remember how Paul, in Acts 16, they wanted to go uh, to some, somewhere called Bithynia. And uh, there's that lovely verse that says, the Spirit of God wouldn't let them go, uh, would not allow them to. So they went to Mycenae and then to Troas, and Paul then had this vision of this man from Macedonia, Macedonia, come and help us. And it was all very clear. But it wasn't Paul's plan, it was God's plan. It was God's strategy. And I'd suggest that the first thing that we need to note here is that throughout this passage and throughout the Acts, it's actually God's work, God's strategy. I remember last week, I was here, I crept in last week to just, you know, come and see you, see what it was like. Um, and uh, was delighted and, uh, to be here. And uh, John was reminding us, our first point, wasn't it, was that it was God's work. And we were up here, right, it was God's work. Um, and it's God's strategy that we see here being worked out by Paul. Let's never uh, forget that we're, we're not here in Southampton in the second decade of the 21st century to help God impact the city with his good news. That would just be presumptuous, wouldn't it? It'd be incredibly stupid. How could we ever help God to do his word, his work? No, we're in Southampton at this precise time because God has put us here and because God is at work. I um, lead a group uh, called uh, Christianity Explored for Internationals and we were saying yesterday morning, you know, the encouraging thing is that when our internationals meet <coughs> on a Wednesday evening, they're there because God is already at work in them. And uh, he's brought them there. He's already working them. We don't have to sort of work up clever ways to sort of get them along and things. Yes, we have to do our part, but God is at work. It's a privilege to be working with him. So what was God's plan for Paul? Why had he led him back to Ephesus? Well, the first thing we see is the place uh, where God has placed him, uh, the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, as you probably know, was a great hub. It was the uh, place where all the roads sort of converged on Ephesus. It was a very strategic location. It was a place where people came to buy and to sell. They went to the stadium to watch the games. They went to the baths, which I gather were there. Uh, they went to the theater. They worshipped the great goddess. Um, and uh, Ephesus was a thriving hub. And also, partly because of that, the population was very transient. People were coming into Ephesus and then they would go, <coughs> go off again, go back to the surrounding towns and villages. And they would obviously tell people, and it's quite clear from the New Testament uh, and from the further chapters of Acts, that they did go back and they told people in their towns and in their villages what God had been doing. They passed on the good news that they'd received from the city. 
And I think as we look around here in Southampton, it's very clear, isn't it, that we too are in a, a fairly strategic city, maybe not quite like Ephesus. Um, but um, we do have also a, quite a transient population. We have students in our universities. And I say universities, otherwise Solent get very cross. Any from Solent here? Right, okay. Um, we have students from our universities here, and they come from all over Britain, and they learn in our Christian unions, in the navigator groups, in our other groups, and we trust that many, well, we know that many become Christians, they go back to their towns and their cities, and uh, they will take the good news back with them, or they move on to new places, and they're active in churches, and so the word of God spreads. But of course we know too that somewhere like Southampton we have thousands of international students coming from countries all over the world, many where it's very difficult to um, hear about the Lord Jesus, and yet while they're here, very open to hear about this strange English culture and this religion that goes along with it, very open to hear about Jesus. A great opportunity, and I know here in Portswood you're very involved, as uh, um, <clears throat> John was saying, with uh, international students, and that's great. But let's take these opportunities to share God's good news. And then looking at Paul's methods. The first thing that I notice here is that if you look in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing per per uh, persuasively about the kingdom of God. Paul goes to the synagogue, as he always did, that was his custom when he went to a new place. He went to find his fellow believers and the fellow Jews that he hoped would become believers, and he taught the religious people. And he was there for three months, and I think he had some measure of, um, of success in teaching in that place. But then we read, in verse uh, 9, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them and they went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And uh, then for the next two years, we see that Paul is teaching in this totally secular environment next door, teaching and explaining the good news. And isn't that just the same for us? There are many people that will come to church. I mean, particularly of my generation, uh, people will still come if we invite them to come to church, uh, especially uh, at Christmas time, or they'll come to something like the Snow Queen, or uh, they'll come to our Christmas programs. And they don't all, but some will. And uh, we can invite them to come in. Some will come on a Sunday. Maybe some of you are here this morning because you've been invited for people you don't know the Lord Jesus. But they've invited you to come along. And we hope that you'll hear more about Jesus here in this place and be attracted to him. But there are also many people, aren't there, that would never come near a religious building. And I think we too have to be quite um, creative and imaginative in thinking about where and how we can um, share the good news of Jesus in secular environments uh, <coughs> throughout our city. Many ways to do uh, this, to find appropriate settings to share the good news, as Paul did. 
Again, we see it's God's strategy. Paul, I don't think he actually particularly might not have moved out if he hadn't been opposed. And all through Acts, we see how God is sort of gently kicking Paul uh, into his plan. Well, let's hope he doesn't have to kick us too hard. Let's be aware and alert to what God is saying. And the next thing that I see, that I think we see in these verses, is uh, how Paul was, uh, the, the way in which Paul was teaching them, his uh, appropriate ways of teaching in, uh, in his method. First of all, um, he was in the right place, and now he's doing it in the right way, because we read that he reasoned, persuaded, argued in the hall of Tyrannus. He was arguing persuasively in the synagogue, and then he had discussions daily in the hall of Tyrannus. I think that Paul uh, was obviously very logical, logically and clearly expounding the good news. Uh, I think he was very effective too. Look in... um, we read in verse 26 that later on, poor old Demetrius, he's uh, considerably worried because he says, you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So Paul had obviously been very persuasive in his arguments. He'd been pretty effective. Now, there's a Quite a nice quote from John Stott who says, arguments, of course, are no substitute for the work of the Holy Spirit. But then, trust in the Holy Spirit is no substitute for arguments either. But although we are certainly trusting in the Holy Spirit, and we'll come on to talk a bit more about that in a moment, but uh, we do need to be able to explain the good news, to explain uh, what God has done for us, to share our stories with other people. We don't need to be theologians. You don't need to be eloquent, but we do need to be prepared to share our stories clearly with the people around us that they might hear the good news of Jesus. And then uh, note too that uh, the whole time scale of this, Paul wasn't in and out. This wasn't, um, the next one, wasn't a... Um, just there for a, yeah, go right down to the end. Thank you, right, yes. Uh, the time scale that he was there over a sustained period of time. This wasn't just a quick trip. He was there for almost three years, uh, he says later on. Um, I think we get that from the end of 22 when he says he stayed in the province a little longer. And he says later he was there nearly three years. And he worked hard. He was teaching probably uh, from 11 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon, which was the heat of the day when Tyrannus didn't need to teach or didn't want to teach. It was too hot in his hall. And he was probably there from Sunday to Friday every week. It was hard work. And he wasn't there just for a few days. And that's not to say that short-term mission work, short-term mission trips are not good. In fact, I would encourage all of you, young and old, I've had 80-year-olds on mission trips, 80-plus on mission trips in Indonesia with me, and they were great. And I've had students and young people, and they were great too. Um, And I've had in between. So do think about what you can do in short-term mission trips, mission work. But also, can I say, do think too about the long haul. God needs Pauls who will stay for at least three years and get really stuck in. So we see something of um, Paul's or God's strategy 
as Paul seeks to impact Ephesus for Christ. But then, the next thing that we realize is that it isn't enough, is it, to just have a strategy. We can have wonderful strategies. We can even have God's strategy. But we need power. And we need God's power. I think that the next thing that we see so clearly, really in most of the rest of this passage, is God's power encountered. We see God at work, God's power at work, in four different incidents in the rest of these verses. The first one that we see there is in verses 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken uh, to the sick and their illnesses were cured. Evil spirits left them. God was at work. God was authenticating the word with these miracles, with these works. And that was great. People were convinced. Now we don't see many things like that happening today. And I don't think that probably we should necessarily be looking for them. Uh, I think we ought to note, just in verse 11, Luke does tell us here that God did extraordinary miracles. Well, a miracle surely is extraordinary. It's supernatural. And Luke is trying to tell us that these were supernatural, supernatural events, or extraordinary, extraordinary events. Um, They weren't everyday things, even in the early church. But God was using it at that time and in that place to authenticate his word. And I think as well, we should be looking to see demonstrations of God's power amongst us. When we pray, do we believe that God is really going to answer us? Do we expect God to do great things? I know I often find it really hard. We were praying yesterday morning, a number of us from above bar praying for the Middle East. And just some of the things we were praying for, you think, well, God, I don't know how you're going to do that. But God does. We can look back in our history and we can see how God has done amazing miracles in bringing down the Berlin Wall, in uh, opening up um, China to the gospel and uh, amazing miracles that people in generations before us would never have believed. Let's pray and let's expect to see God working. Uh, but then uh, the second event, um, we've got these seven, these seven sons of Sceva. I rather like this story. Um, I don't think I'm supposed to laugh. I don't know if we are supposed to smile at it, but it always makes me smile. You see, God was demonstrating his power, but you can't mess with God's power, can you? There were people trying to imitate it. These seven guys, they came along and they thought that they could jump on the bandwagon. But, uh, in fact, Satan gets his comeuppance and uh, they end up, he gave them such a beating, verse 16b, that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. God is powerful. But we can't play around with it. It's God's power and we need to come to God and we need to wait on him and to use his power in his way. But in spite of that, we see that this incident 
actually did bring great glory to God. It's in verse 17 that we read, uh, if we have the next one, uh, that uh, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. <clears throat> Jesus' name is glorified even through people doing it all wrong and getting on. Because God is God and he's going to get the glory. And so God allows his name to be honored even through these, uh, this misuse of his power. And then we see that as a result of that, verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together, publicly burned them. And I, you know, I've read this passage so many times, but it was only when I was rereading it and preparing this that I was struck by the incredible value of these scrolls. They agreed to burn them. They no longer believed in this magic. God, Jesus, was the highest name. They believed in Jesus. They didn't want this rubbish anymore. But this rubbish was valuable. But they happily have a bonfire. They burn the lot. And then we're told it was equivalent to uh, 50,000 drachmas. And a drachma, it says at the bottom of most of our Bibles, I'm sure, was about a day's wages. It was 50,000 days wages. That is an incredible amount. Now, I don't do numbers, but I did actually divide it by 365, well, my calculator did, and it comes to almost 137 years. Well, that is astonishing. I mean, that was a huge amount of money that they were, even if I got the maths wrong, it's still a huge amount of money that they were prepared to sacrifice. But repentance, if repentance is real, is very often very costly, isn't it? But God's name was honoured, they repented, and we see that Jesus is the Lord. But Satan doesn't give up so easily. We come to the fourth incident, and that is the riot in Ephesus <coughs> brought about by Demetrius. And we see that Demetrius here takes up Satan's cause with great effectiveness. Demetrius was the equivalent of the silversmiths trades union representative in Ephesus or maybe the chairman of the guild of silversmiths for the year. But anyway, he shows himself to be very eloquent as he stirs up his fellow craftsmen with a cunning strategy. Did you notice? Do you see he's not primarily driven by concern for the goddess. We see in verse 25, he called them together along with the workmen, etc., and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. His first concern was his own possible financial undoing, I think, and everybody else's. But of course, he cloaks it in a veneer of religiosity, doesn't he, in order to, to gain the moral high ground. And in verse 7, 27, there is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Well, some goddess 
if her divinity is dependent on these little images being made and sold. However, Demetrius' scheme seems to have succeeded because the city is in great disarray. In 28 to 31, you can read it uh, again for yourselves, but uh, you see how the people are furious and they're shouting and the whole city is in uproar. And uh, they rush as one man into the theater. I mean, it's, it's a dreadful scene. And poor Paul and his companions must have been scared out of their wits. Uh, but people were there. I love this bit in uh, verse 32. Uh, most of the people did not even know why they were there. It reminds me, I, there was a demonstration when I was uh, in uh, central Kalimantan, uh, working there and teaching there. And uh, there were occasionally there were demonstrations against the um, Americans if they invaded somewhere in the Middle East or something. There'd be demonstrations against them. Against them. And on this occasion, in the um, city, uh, city centre, on a big roundabout in the city, there were uh, a few people there with a few placards demonstrating. Uh, not a great number, but they were making some sort of effort. And uh, a missionary colleague of mine went up to them and said to them, um, what are you here for? And one of the guys turned around and said, I have no idea, he said. They gave me some money and told me to hold up this placard. <laughs> so, um, uh, I think uh, that we could believe that many of these people just didn't know what they were there for, but they were certainly causing a disturbance and they were making life difficult. Paul and his followers, the followers of the way, the Christians as they became known, were in a very tight corner. But we've seen that God has his strategy, that God is the one with the power, and it's God's power that we've seen throughout this chapter. And if God's strategy is employed and God's power is encountered, I might have those on the next uh, PowerPoint, sorry. Yes. Uh, then we can be assured that God's victory will be enjoyed. And the next one, please. God's victory is enjoyed here. How? Well, it's certainly not by seeing uh, Paul and the others sort of counterattacking. They didn't have a chance, really, did they? They don't attempt to shout down Artemis. They'd have had problems. Two hours with the whole city chanting. Um, but they don't try to outmaneuver the opposition, but nor do they seek any sort of compromise with the false gods. They just wait quietly, and God intervenes. And God causes this presumably non-believing city clerk, this high city official, to quietly and sensibly intervene. Common sense begins to see, seems to begin to prevail. And do you see how the intervention of this high-ranking Roman official actually is bringing great victory to the gospel? Um, he is showing how these Christians, these followers of the way, are not a threat. And he's on the side of the Romans, and so the Roman authorities are seeing that, no, this is reasonable. These people are within the law. This is not a problem. Um, John Stott again says, in Ephesus, 
the town clerk implied that the opposition was purely emotional and that the Christians, being innocent, had nothing to fear from duly constituted legal processes. Thus, the cool reasonableness of the city clerk helped to give the gospel freedom to continue on its victorious course. And we see at the end of the chapter that uh, after uh, the official had said this, he dismissed the assembly, and chapter 20, verse uh, 1, when the opera ended, they all went home, and uh, Paul sent the disciples, and after encouraging them, and I'm sure he was encouraged them to keep going, not to give up, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia and continued on that plan that God had set out for him. God has proved victorious. Jesus has the highest honor. Jesus is Lord. By the working of the Holy Spirit, through all the opposition and the discomfort, but it's the Holy Spirit at work, God has gained the victory. Impacting the city for Christ. Impacting Southampton or 21st century cities globally for Jesus. How do we do it? By employing God's strategies. How do we know them? Only as we wait on God as we attend the briefing meetings, as we listen to what God is saying, as we read his word. Let's seek God's plan for Portswood, for our city, for the places where we work. But as God's power is encountered, as we see God at work, it's not us. We can't do anything. It's great to see a church that's almost full, we're a bit of a puny number if you put all the Christians together in Southampton, aren't we, compared with the whole city? And as for the world, we're growing Christians throughout the world, but we're still uh, a minority. But what's that got to do with it? It's God's power that's at work. And then we will enjoy God's victory. Let's go out from here encouraged, ready to do God's will, to do God's work, to enjoy God's victory in our world. Amen.